Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a free show. All episodes of this podcast are offered freely, more than 500 and counting. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. It is all free. So if you would like to support the show, that does make a difference. If you like the program and you want to show your support, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People (laughs) Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's very good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Will Mackin is my guest today. He's got a uh, debut story collection out from Random House. It is called Bring Out the Dog. And uh, Will has an interesting background. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, as a member of the U.S. Navy. He worked as a weapons system officer uh, on the air, uh, you know, on Navy jets that were based on aircraft carriers out in the middle of the ocean. And then he was a, ter- uh, what is it called? A joint terminal attack controller as part of the SEAL team, the Navy SEALs. So uh, he's twice the man that I am. And uh, we talk about that. But, you know, what's also interesting is that I actually uh, corresponded with Will years ago via email. He's a listener of this show and uh, wrote to me to tell me about it. And then uh, he goes on to publish stories in the New Yorker magazine. He's got one coming out in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, and now he's got this collection, which, uh, you know, there, every year there seems to be uh, a small handful of debut story collections that find their way into print and uh, tend to be gushed over by everybody. And Bring Out the Dog is one of them. Uh, just in- incredible uh, writing by Will Mack in, in this collection. I'm very pleased to have had the chance to sit down with him and to uh, talk about how it came to be. So you'll hear that in just a second. I do want to respond to some listeners. Uh, what do I got here? I got a, a listener named Sam who writes, Hi, Brad. I saw the video that you posted of Twiggy and some other dogs on Twitter. I love the editing in this. It reminds me of the editing in that one scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. They both seem very similar. Slow motion, jump cuts, camera switches, etc. Have you be- Have you ever considered becoming a film editor? Signed, Sam. 
So the video in question I posted on Twitter, it's Twiggy uh, at Puppy Kindergarten. And, you know, you're in this waiting room. This is where Puppy Kindergarten happens in Los Angeles. You're in a uh, veterinarian's office in the waiting room with like 15, uh, you know, incredibly spastic uh, puppies. And they're all mauling one another. And so I shot it in slow motion and uh, edited it together in uh, iMovie or whatever you have on your phone. I posted that on Twitter if you want to watch it. Sam, uh, thanks for writing. I appreciate the kind words on the video. I can't think of the scene in question in uh, Fear and Loathing. I I think he linked it in his email. I haven't had a second to watch it, but I'll take a look at that. I have never thought about becoming a film editor, but I do have a film degree. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in film studies from the University of Colorado. So I have edited film. Back in my day, we used the... uh, the movie Ola. We did it by hand. We actually spliced celluloid. We didn't do any of this digital stuff, but it's gotten so easy now you can do it on your phone. And I do actually like editing in iMovie on my phone. I like picking the moment of the cut and seeing how it works and adding, you know, that's actually kind of a cool little way to make films. So I also asked Twitter today, I was like, if you have questions or anything you want me to address in this monologue, uh, please respond here. Claire V. Watkins, a past guest on this program, wants me to talk about making art in the Anthropocene. I got to say, I actually had to Google Anthropocene, which I believe uh, is like the period of time after the invention of the atomic bomb. I think it's a little bit up for debate. And I could be misunderstanding this because it was just a cursory glance at Wikipedia. But I think that's what she means. So Claire, you know, I I have been thinking about this uh, vis-a-vis my, uh, my own, uh, novel, the work that I've been doing. And, uh, let's see here. Hang on. And so there's a, um, what do you want to call it? Like the, uh, epigraph to the novel. I think I've picked the epigraph and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this badly in keeping with uh, custom on this show. But the epigraph that I've picked for the, the latest iteration of my novel is this Thomas Merton quote about how if you write uh, for God, you know, you will uh, be happy and have lots of success. If you write for men, you may have some success, but it will be fleeting or whatever. And then it says, if you write for yourself, you'll be so miserable that within like 10 minutes, you'll want to kill yourself. (laughs) And so I think that's what I think about when it comes to making art in the Anthropocene is that as cluttered as everything is, as meaningless as it can often seem, uh, especially if you're trying to make a living at it, and, and this, this goes for writers of uh, books, it goes for writers of film and television, it goes for directors, it goes for everyone. There's so much goddamn content. It just seems overwhelming and ridiculous after a while. At the same time, it's nice that uh, people find an outlet. Everybody can post stuff on the internet or whatever, and everybody can make a film with their iPhone. I guess there's something to that, but, uh, if you're actually making art with serious intent and you want to try to make a living at it and you're, you know, you're going for that route, I think you have to swing for the fences. I think you have to make art for God. And I put God in quotes, you know, it's not a a religious thing. It just means that you have to swing for the fences and you have to be talking to the spheres or whatever, you know, instead of talking just to yourself or just to your peers or that's where, that's where I'm at with it now. You know, in the past, 
you know, I remember reading like the Stephen King book on writing and it was like, you know, you just write for one person, write for that one special person, your special reader, whether it's your spouse or your significant other or your best friend or somebody in your fiction workshop or whatever it is. If you can please that one person, then it stands to reason that you'll be able to please many other people. And uh, that made sense to me too. So I'm of, you know, multiple minds on this as I'm of multiple minds on everything. But I think my largest thought at this particular moment regarding making art in the Anthropocene is that you should just swing for the fences. Write about the stuff that keeps you awake at night. Write about the stuff that means the absolute most. Write about the stuff that uh, you're scared to write about. Can you guys hear Twiggy? She's like rolling around. This dog has an incredible amount of energy. She just like winds up, uh, she just, you know, when, when she gets in this, mo- in this mode where she can't contain herself, she just sort of wiggles and uh, often begins to bark. So uh, a listener named Jeff Little says, Marshall McLuhan, he wants me to talk about Marshall McLuhan's prophecy that one day all television would be pornography. How are we doing as a society on this one and how can we cross this finish line together? <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. I think we're a long way off, actually. If I'm thinking about, especially if I'm thinking about Netflix, streaming services, there's actually a lot of good television. There's a lot of good episodic television and documentary series. Like I'm watching this uh, documentary from the Duplass brothers called Wild Wild Country. Uh, I keep falling asleep in the middle of episode one. I don't want to fall asleep, but I'm just so tired at night that I do. So I've watched episode one like in four different installments over four different nights and I've fallen asleep each time. I'm still not done with it, but I know that it's good. And I know that I want to like, I wish I could binge watch the whole thing in a state of total alertness, but that's just not in the cards for me. But, uh, that's just one example. Now, when it comes to uh, like, what do you call it? Terrestrial television or cable television, you know, direct TV. Like I have direct TV when I turn it on, 95% of it is garbage to me. And a lot of it, it, you know, would qualify in some sense as pornography. Cable television sucks a lot, a lot the same way that, uh, you know, terrestrial radio sucks. You ever turn on the radio these days? It's, it's so bad. It's so like embarrassingly bad. I mean, yes, there are some exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, it's just garbage. You never want to listen to it. Why would you ever? So, you know, I would also say with regard to cable television that our uh, news media, you know, this sort of siloed uh, news media structure that we have in the absence of the fairness doctrine is uh, a huge problem. That seems like Fox News in particular seems very pornographic to me in terms of how flagrant they are in, uh, you know, their uh, violations of uh, journalistic norms. So thanks, Jeff. We've got some time. A listener named John uh, Tormey says, what is the best new exciting writing happening? What is this specific moment producing? I know that's really two questions, but as a tech dumb, married dad of three with a full-time job, I need help. So that's a tough question. And I should, uh, you know, I have to cop to it. I'm not, I'm not the guy who's read every single new thing. Far from it. Uh, I read a lot of nonfiction uh, like predominantly nonfiction lately, but, uh, one book, uh, that I should tell you that I've been hearing a lot about, and 
I think I have, because of uh, what I do, a pretty good sense for when some when, when a book is generating a, a, a huge amount of excitement is a uh, debut story collection by Jamel Brinkley called A Lucky Man. It's coming out from Grey Wolf. And uh, I don't know when it's coming out. Hang on. Let me see if I can find it. It's coming out in May. So I would keep my eye, you know, my eye out for that. But I, I would also say, uh, you know, so many of the authors that I've had on this program are producing, uh, you know, really exciting work that I think uh, years from now is going to be looked back upon, uh, you know, or not is going to be looked back upon, but is going to continue to be read and is going to be looked back upon as, uh, you know, a literature that was helping to define its time. We'll see, I guess. Uh, Rachel Newcomb says, uh, when are you going to do your summer camp for writers? You know, I would love to do that, Rachel. I talked about this on a past episode as I've uh, been in this transitional phase between jobs where I'm thinking about my next move. Like, what would I do if I, if money were no object? What would I do if I won the lottery? And I had this idea that I would set up this camp around a mountain lake with like, you know, cabins be like a writer's retreat be like uh, what was it called like brad listy's yato i think i had a listener suggest that that would be the name of it but that sort of thing you know it's all a matter of funding if uh if my patreon (laughs) if my patreon uh donation account overflows at some point maybe i will invest in a uh summer camp for writers it's on my list Kathleen White says, I really don't mind when you talk about Trump and the political situation. Go for it. I like your kind demeanor. Thanks, Kathleen. I do worry about that. I, you know, I've gotten some pushback from listeners who feel like the show should be only about literature. It should be only, you know, only be about books and everything kind of but politics so that this show functions as an escape from all that. And I get that. And I, I try to be respectful. I don't want to overwhelm people with the bad news, but I feel like things are so fucked up and so extreme that it's impossible to not talk about it. And it's irresponsible to not talk about it at least somewhat. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So... Yeah, in the case of Will Mackin, who uh, you know is a U.S. Navy veteran, SEAL team, uh, has been in war theaters. Uh, you know his perspective on all this is something that I found uh, 
enormously valuable, and I think you will too. So let's get to Will Mack, and his new uh, debut story collection is called Bring Out the Dog. It's available from Random House. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Will Mackin. It was kind of a snap decision. Um, you know, I was in high school. I wasn't a very good student in high school. Goofed off a lot. In uh, senior year, my friends went off to different colleges, and they were very excited about it. They were going to have all kinds of fun, and uh, I was stuck at home. Um, and I went to see the movie Top Gun in theaters. Okay. And that's what is this, did it. Is this really what did it? That's really what did it. It's cheesy as it sounds. You know, I went and saw it, and I was like, God damn, I want to do that. You know, I just wanted to fly. You felt the need. I wanted to be maverick. You felt, I felt the need, the need for, for speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so silly. Okay, so I remember reading a book by Anthony Swafford called Jarhead. Yeah, you, I read that, yeah. And so he was talking about being, I believe this is the book, where he's on base, and everybody's watching, uh, it's like Apocalypse Now, or... Uh-huh. Um, full Metal Jacket. Yeah. And there is this thing in Hollywood where, and, and you know, yeah, like media, TV, film, where you're presenting more. And a lot of times I feel like the uh, the auteurs mm-hmm. in the world of film who are presenting war are going to great lengths to present w- the hell of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to kind of pull no punches, mm-hmm. to uh, present it as it really is, to try to get it as authentic as possible so that the viewer in the theater watches it and comes away like shaken and horrified and and, you know come hopefully can come to a better understanding of just how terrible it is Mm -hmm. and then in swafford's book as i recall it's like all the soldiers are are watching it like it's getting them fired up it's like entertainment yeah and there's this sort of like dark humor to it where it's like oh wow like you would think that this would somehow you know scare people off or make people think twice and it's really just like yeah bring it yeah yeah no, I definitely identify with that. I mean, I was I joined the Navy in 1991, and um, and it was peaceful for half of my career. And the entire, you know, whenever we would practice for uh, for war or combat, it was it was practice. It was make believe. And so, you know, I won't say it ever seemed like it was never going to happen. You know, we tried to prepare ourselves. We tried to be serious about it. But there was an element of kind of playing a part, you know, just showing up and like going through the motions of whatever we had to do in order to get a good grade on it and then move on to the next thing. <clears throat> so when when the war actually broke out, there was definitely, I won't, it's not enough like a euphoria, but like in one of the stories I say, um, it was the kind of mission that would have been fun. You know, and, and I actually got pushed back from the editors on that. They're like, you really mean fun? You know, like war is fun. But it it was. In the beginning, it was a different kind of fun. It's just the excitement of being prepared to do something that you've worked so hard at and actually being able to do it um, and doing it with people that you love. And that's that was the fun of it. And so uh, when you say the war broke out, what, what war are we talking um, Afghanistan first and then Iraq. Okay. So that was like, for me, that was mid-career. That was 2002-ish, a little okay. bit. Okay, yeah. but you, you joined in 1991. Right. So you were in for how many years total? 23 total. Okay. Yeah, I retired in 2014. Okay, so let's let's go to like 9-11 and the year or two after that. Like where were mm-hmm. you on 9-11, first of all? I was assigned to uh, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, which was um, in the shipyards in uh, Virginia. And so the entire aircraft carrier was in dry dock, and it was up on blocks, basically. 
um, and they were removing all the reactor uh, rods, all the fuel basically for the nuclear engine. They were removing it and replacing it. It's a years-long process. Um, so I was on the ship that day that happened, and um, I remember like it's it's not defended. It's just you know sitting in dry dock. There's a bunch of civilian ship work or uh, shipyard workers, welders, and all kinds of different people on it. But they evacuated all those people, and then they tried to find some weapons. I remember the the commanding officer telling us all we were under attack, and we were trying to find like a at least one fifty cal to mount on the back of the ship. You know, they tried to steer a plane towards the aircraft carrier. Well, I'll tell you, like it sounds. I mean, in hind, like you know, looking at or talking about it now, it's like, oh well, you know, you, you were in no danger. But on that right. day. Yeah, nobody knew what the nobody hell was going on. Nobody knew that what the hell was going on. I remember yeah. saying, like, like what's what's next? Right. What's going to happen next? Right. Like, it's like know? the whole every plane in the sky is going to come rocketing down. You know. So it was. Uh, yeah, it was not scary. It was just disorienting, really. Did you feel prepared? Like, were you prepared? I guess you'd be better prepared than just about anybody. But like on the day that happened, like as like the news comes in, like we are under attack, mm-hmm. which is something that on uh, you know continental U.S. It never really happened. We'd never really, at least in my lifetime, no one ever bombed us. Right. We're yeah. sort of, that was, I was always sort of under the impression that we're, you know, we're uh, protected by two oceans. We have friendly neighbors, north and south. Like the United States was sort of, uh, you know, in, in this little like safe womb. Right. And that uh, illusion was destroyed that day. Like when it happened and when the news came to you, how did you process the shock? Was it quick? Were you like, okay, it's on. We were ready for this. We knew this was possible. Or was it like, holy shit like yeah it was like, both i mean really it was a mix of both uh, you know the good thing about being in the military is there's always something to do right so we show up the next day and now we're getting ready to get the ship ready so we can head back out and it was kind of the same thing we were doing before but there was an urgency to it an added urgency um that uh that carried through the rest of my career really i mean for a little while i was stationed at the pentagon and I, I worked in the section that had been destroyed and they rebuilt it. And it was, you know, very nice. Um, the construction, the furnishings, everything was just, you know, top notch. It's a beautiful uh, rebuild. And they, they had some memorial things kind of built into the structure itself. Um, one of the things that I remember I used to go to a lot is there was a, a, um, almost like an engineering diagram, something like an architect would come up with that kind of showed all the levels um, and it showed all the offices as they were prior to the attack or at the moment of the attack, actually. It showed the impact point of the aircraft because it kind of hit the ground first and then bounced into the building. And in, and it showed kind of the, the blast um, direction and, uh, you know, where the you know, things that were destroyed, things that were burned, people who were sitting at their desk, who survived, who was killed. Very detailed drawing of that of that moment or a few moments of the attack. <clears throat> so that was um that was pretty interesting to just go up there and look at that. I mean more than any memorial I've seen that was that kind of captured the whole thing for me makes it real yeah definitely I have a buddy who I think in uh, kind of wisely like right after 9/11 when everybody was terrified to fly like yeah. as soon as the airports reopened flights could be had for nothing really because yeah. nobody, nobody was flying commercial mm-hmm. aircraft 
everybody was there was a while where it was like i don't want to get on a plane unless yeah. I, unless i absolutely have to he got on a plane to new york city on like the first day that commercial avi- aviation restarted uh-huh. went to new york went directly to ground zero as close as he could get yeah and like took it in with his own two eyes wow and i was like i wish i would have done that because you know you see it on tv it's mediated you see these uh, you know the same images over and over and over again right, and it yeah. has this kind of deadening effect it does yeah and you know he got to go there and like smell, smell it, it. Yeah. yeah everything right right yeah i was just there i mean it's very moving what they've done with the reflective pools in the uh, museum. Uh, but it's also very sanitized, you know, it's just, how can you imagine the scale of something like that? Um, yeah. That's some valuable real estate too. Like I was yeah. like, I was like, just make it a park, mm-hmm. just make it a park, like open it up, make it like a beautiful green space, plant some trees. Yeah. But it's like, no, we need a tower. Got some real estate. I know. Right. <laughs> Probably Trump jr. Was involved. <laughs> So, okay, so you're in, you, you, uh, you, we, I think we were talking before we actually started recording about time in Boulder. Mm-hmm. So we have that in common. Yes. Were you in Boulder before you went into the Navy? Yeah, I was in ROTC. Oh, you did. So did, yeah. but did you go to college at Boulder? Yeah. Okay. So you left Jersey mm-hmm. and went to Boulder. Correct. Why did you pick Boulder? Uh, because I was a snowboarder and I wanted to. Right in the Western mountains. That's a good, it's a good reason. It was a great reason because it worked out really well. My roommate was on the ski team. Uh, he was a skier and he was, you know, phenomenal. And I just tried to follow him. So I, you know, learned a lot too from him. Do you smoke weed? In college? <laughs> no, I don't. I, it, you know, I have nothing against it. Yeah. I tried it when I was a kid and it, it just didn't work. Okay. So no, like mushrooms. Cause Boulder there, it's a big part of the yeah, culture there. I know. Yeah. My friends were very much into mushrooms and, um, Coke was big back then. Special K. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Special I don't know. I, I, I was very, I, I guess, I mean like Top Gun really gave me direction. I was like, I'm not going to fuck this up. You know, I wanted, I wanted a spot in flight school and I wanted to fly jets. That was it. And that was it, you know, and I'd go out drinking or whatever, but I wouldn't, um, I got in a bunch of fights too. And God, I don't know why, but anyway, like in Boulder. Yeah. Speeding on like hippies. Well, you know, the stuff I remember, it was like unprovoked. (laughs) It's probably, I'm probably remembering it wrong because I may have been obnoxious, but anyway, it's like, yeah, I was, I did not have a good record either. I was probably like, you know. Seven losses out of 10 fights. Oh, really? Yeah. You got your ass kicked. Yeah. That's good preparation. It's good. It's definitely, it's a good education. Let's put it that way. You picking on guys that were bigger than you? No. I don't, you know. Better fighters? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They were definitely better fighters. Most of the time I was drunk, so I was probably being a jerk and then, you know, got what I had coming. Um, That's not, you know, exactly the way I remembered it at the time, but it was, uh, Anyway, what was your question? I don't know. <laughs> Boulder, just like, like what you were doing. Like, oh, hey, mushrooms. It's, and, inter- yeah, it's interesting to me that you were inspired by Top Gun. You wanted to go to flight school. You're not going to do anything that you felt like could potentially impair your cognitive function because to be a pilot at that level, you've got to really, like your reflexes, your thought yeah. processes, your, all that kind of stuff. Like you've got to be on your game. It, yeah, but... It was, uh, the reason was more direct. I mean, we get urinalysis every 
couple months. It was a random process. They would bring us in. You'd have to pee in a cup. If you failed the test, then you were out. I'd lose my scholarship. I'd have to pay it back. There was no way I could fly. So that was really, you know, and, and throughout my time in the Navy, same thing. Did you get to fly? Yeah, you did. I did. I went, um, I got a, I earned a pilot spot. I went to uh, Pensacola and I did the big physical there and I failed the eye test. And so I wound up being uh, the equivalent of Goose. So I was like a navigator weapon system guy. And I flew a much less sexy jet. It's called the Prowler. has a big bulbous nose. <clears throat> and its mission was electronic jamming. Okay, so what does Goose do? Like you're in the you're in the plane, you're not piloting. Right. You're doing you're running the systems or Yeah. I'm like pushing buttons and turning on the jammers, turning off the jammers, listening to what radars are out there. If I was sitting it's a four seat jet or two in front and two in back. It's like a, like the minivan of the uh, Navy fleet. It's the Ford Aerostar. It was the Aerostar. <laughs> <laughs> but probably less reliable than the Aerostar. Um and we and the NFOs were called Naval Flight Officers. We would cycle through the three seats. So the pilot was always in the front left, and that was the only set of controls in the aircraft. And then the two back seats were mission, and the front right seat was navigation and communication. And so we kind of, the front right was where you wanted to be because that was fun. So we'd cycle through those seats. And how fast are you going? Like what's happening in that aircraft? It's uh, it's subsonic unless you go to 40,000 feet with nothing on the wings and you point straight at the ground. And then you'll see the demon right at about 15,000 feet. And you got to like dig out. It is not comfortable. What do you, mean, just, what do you mean see the demon? It's uh, the speed of sound. So okay. you'll like, um, it's from uh, the right stuff. Okay. Chuck Yeager sees the demon. Oh, right. Because gets to Mach 1. But in the Prowler, though, you have to do this very unnatural thing to get to Mach 1. And, and it's got uh, there's a refueling probe kind of built in. It's just permanent. It sticks on the nose like this. And when... Uh, when you're digging out, that thing will shake. The whole dashboard shakes and jumps. It's like you're driving down a, a shitty street. You know, it's just really bumpy. The whole thing is shaking. Like it's, you feel like it's going to come fart. No, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it feels like it's right at the edge of aerodynamic stall. Like you could be going that fast and pull yourself into a did, stall. Did you ever go that fast? Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, we used to do it every once in a while. Like when I was, when I was uh, a junior officer it was fun i was like yeah let's go do it you know and the older guys are always they're like come on we got to do that again and as i got older i was kind of more in the come on did you have a code name crowd yeah it was uh mule was my call sign mule was your so everyone has a call sign yeah pretty much okay did you get to pick it no that's the thing like it it is bestowed upon you for doing something stupid usually oh right that makes sense because like when i uh when i hike the appalachian trail everyone's supposed to take a trail name okay but you're not supposed to give yourself a trail name. Yeah. So I what was is there like a, I was Wolfgang, like a gnome along the fucking trail. Who no, like somebody you meet, me. somebody you meet. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like someone's got to like, you got to do something or someone's got to, you know, someone in your group, someone in your group, someone you meet. I was hiking by my, I had my dog. So my dog is not going to give me a trail name. But <laughs> my buddy who hiked with me the first couple of days or whatever, we were talking about it and he stuck that on me and it stayed. And what was it? Wolfgang. Oh, Wolfgang. I don't know why, hmm. you know, but you have to like introduce yourself. I, I kind of found it a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. I, I get it in the military, but like when I'm out in the middle of the woods, yeah, I, you know, yeah. It's a well, lot. What point is there? But yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Wolfgang. Uh, so, okay. So you, uh, are in the Navy for the nineties. The nineties are sort of, I always say the nineties are the new fifties. It's sort of like kind of peaceful. Yep. I guess the, there was a Korean war in the fifties. So it wasn't, there time. was, yeah. But we the nineties really sort of seems like, uh, 
I don't know, a folksy, easy, happy time. It was like, you know, what's that song by REM? Happy, lucky people or whatever. Shiny, happy, shiny, happy people. (laughs) That's what we were. You know, we didn't think, uh, I forget when Boutros, Boutros Ghali was, uh, secretary general of the UN, but it just seemed like peace was going to continue. Yeah. No the Soviet what. Union had, dis- you know, had dissembled and yeah. like, you know, we didn't realize what was coming with Russia. Right. But there were things that would flare up every once in a while. And we, and honestly, like the mood in the squadron, because I was flying at the time was like, yeah, let's, uh, man, I hope something happens that we get to do something. Not that we wished, you know, death and destruction on anybody, but it was just, We've been doing this for so long. Well, you're preparing, you're nice. practicing, you're practicing over yeah. and over and over again. Right. And then Boutros, Boutros would show up and he would smooth it out and we'd be like, God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah. Uh, okay. So when you get to the second half of your career in the Navy, mm-hmm. when we basically um, get onto a war footing that we've never left, mm-hmm. we have, we've been on a war footing since 2001. Yep. It's been 17 years. Yeah. That seems fucked up to me. I know. Like perpetual war. Yeah. You know, it's And really like, I think there's a compelling argument to be made. The 90s conversation aside, whatever, you know, little pocket of peace we had during those years wasn't entirely peaceful. There were some, you know, some... Yeah, there was Kosovo. Kosovo. There were a few things that we got mixed up in. But nothing, nothing like on this scale. Uh, mm. I think there's an argument to be made that the United States has been uh, on a war footing since... 1945 or whatever, you know, like it really seems like, or 19, whenever we entered 42 is when we entered world war. Yeah. 44. When did we enter world war two? I should know Uh, this. I think it was 42. So, you know, it it seems like, you know, there are very few windows of time where we have been completely disengaged. Mm -hmm. And then we've also been building, um, an international military presence Mm -hmm. bases, uh, all over the world. Yeah. And, uh, I don't, know how sustainable that is and i worry that we're in these wars that you can't ever like extricate yourself from like Mm -hmm. what's your take on it having actually been in it well um my take on it from the from fighting it um it's just that it's it's very cyclical and uh not just the the day-to-day although there's that but the overall i mean we were on a rotation we called it a rotation we would uh, we would uh, train, and then we'd go on alert, and then we'd deploy, and then we'd come back and train, and go on alert and deploy. And it was just, it was constant. And and the what we were doing, the the strategy of what we were doing was almost beside the point because we were training to a very specific mission. And um, I don't know, you know, I don't I don't know what the objective is now. Back then, I'd have a hard time trying to tell you what the objective was. Our mission was to hunt high-value targets, and the hope was that by removing the head of the snake, you know, the rest would fall apart. And I saw evidence of that. I've, I saw that happen. But then I also saw, uh, and I'm talking about Afghanistan in particular here, where <clears throat> in the winter, um, the fight would leave. Like everybody, not everybody, but the Taliban and the major players would go over to Pakistan and they would recruit, and they would train, and then they'd come back in the spring. And so we'd have the same problem. We'd just have new leaders. Um, and that continued. I did it for six years. That continued that entire time. I'd, I'd say it probably is still continuing to some scale. So I don't know what the answer is to that. Where were you? Were you on a plane? Were you on a boat? Both? 
No, I was on the ground. Oh, you I was the ground. attached to a SEAL team. I was. I'd gone from flying to um, what's called uh, being a joint terminal attack controller. So I controlled airstrikes, and that was my job while I was attached to them. Okay. And did you see like heavy combat? I well, it, we. We did night raids, and the ones that I was on, I'd be back and forth. Like, I'd be uh, in what we call the Tactical Operations Center, and uh, I could control from there. Or, you know, if they needed another person, they'd bring me out. Um, and I ran some attacks, but I didn't see anything like the, uh, you know, the scale of the stuff that really, you know, gets on the radar of, of the media. Uh, but definitely... Just the kind of the drudgery of the night raids where there may be a small skirmish and pretty much everybody in the house gets wiped out. You know, that was that was a fairly common occurrence. Really? Yeah. God. No, like, I mean, the, the people that we were targeting would get wiped out. They were very good at discriminating targets. Right. Um, but still, like being on it, like to me, like my, my temperament, my just inherent cowardice, I feel like being in like a military vehicle going out into the night on you know into some village or something uh, that would be terrifying it was uh, i mean it was exciting for me for for a long time i just i don't remember terror but i did have you're not thinking to yourself i could die like someone's gonna no there were a couple times um but it, it came after not in the moment um i guess you can't you don't hit I me mean, when you're when you're in it and you're doing it probably doesn't help to be like Oh, definitely not. You got to no. just, you got to just turn that switch off and yeah. focus. Yeah. You just got to do what you're doing. I hope I could do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But we flew everywhere. We didn't, we didn't drive for the reason of the, there were IEDs. I was going to say, know? okay. So we had, we had a huge budget and we had like all these assets that were assigned to us. Um, and so in, in some ways that made things a lot easier. So you chop her in? Oh Yeah. Everywhere. Just, what did you do? You rappel on one of those ropes? Like no, into- it would land and we'd get out. Sometimes, like yeah, on on the side of mountains, we'd uh, fast rope. They call it okay out the back. If it was a um, uh, CH forty seven or MH forty sevens, were what we flew around in most of the time. Although we did have Blackhawks as well that were like up armored. And you were never you never felt like your life was in danger. No, you know there were times I was scared, like uh, but it was usually for something stupid. Like I, um. For a while in uh, my first deployment to Iraq, I would wind up sitting in the door of the Blackhawk. We had Blackhawks there. And there was a, a minigun, one of those cannons, in the door. And every time we'd leave the base and go you know, out on a mission, at some point on the flight out, they would test the cannon. And it was like I forgot every fucking time. And I was sitting next to the thing, and it rips off. It's like this huge flame shoots out of it and brass is like flying out of the fucking gun and dropping down everywhere, like down your, down my back and underneath my armor. And it's hot, you know, so it'll burn. Um, but every time that thing went off and it was like, this real, real loud noise. I, I just about shit my pants, even though I knew that it was going to happen. And then I feel like an idiot afterwards. And hopefully I was, you know, you gotta be. I didn't look like I was well, gonna shit my. But face. with the uh, with the roadside bombs and with just like mortar, like random mortar attacks mm-hmm. and the threat of that always sort of looming. Like I don't care how much poise you have or fearlessness or how well trained you are, you've got to be kind of coiled at all times, like ready for something to happen. So then yeah. it makes sense to me, like any kind of loud noise. Yeah. Like if there's an explosion anywhere near you, you'd probably have a. You know, you have to have a response. Yeah. Yeah. It was. 
But like in the moment or actually like running an attack or something like that, it wouldn't, that wouldn't register as much, obviously. But just, yeah, in the quiet moments when I'm kind of relaxing and sitting down, I'm just looking at the scenery because it's beautiful, you know, like looking on night vision, seeing all the stars, seeing, you know, things on the ground, um, watching the, like the packs of wild dogs run. Um, one night I remember we're just going over rolling hills and there was a cop car off in the distance and its spinners were going and you could see kind of, kind of like a lighthouse, the, um, how the spinners were just, uh, projecting all the way across the landscape and turning around. It looked like a giant pinwheel. Wow. Stuff like that was, um, so I get memorized or, uh, mesmerized by something like that. And then the cannon would go off and I shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> When you're in the middle of all this, are you working on writing? Like, do your do your do your uh, fellow uh, navy men know that you uh, have the soul of a poet? Like, are they, are they aware of this? I don't. I don't think they did. <laughs> they probably thought I was goofball. But the um, it, it was ju- it was kind of an obsession. There were things that I didn't want to forget, right? And when I got to the SEAL team, there was a very lengthy process to actually become a member of the team, and in that process. I pretty much just gave up the idea of ever writing about it because I didn't want, I mean, it's drilled into you. You can't talk about this. You can't write about this. You can't, you know. So you passed those tests to get into the SEAL. Yeah. Navy SEAL. You did all that stuff like where you're lying in the ocean and staying up all night. Not, not, um, buds and the other training that SEALs do, I didn't do. I did it. Uh, I mean, it was still difficult, but it was more, um, just so I wouldn't be a liability to them when they took, took me out and other guys, you know, would do the same type of training. So we, I mean, it was, it was difficult and it was also very fun. Um, I, I thought what I always like, notice about what's funny about the seal team is that, you know, like what's the attrition rate in terms of people, uh, flunking out or dropping out of that training. It's, it's pretty high. It's really high, like a 5% or whatever of the guys who do the training, make it through. Right. What I'm always fascinated is by, is that when you look at the guys who actually make it through to become seals, you're sort of expecting them to all look like the rock or whatever. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times they're a little bit, uh, chubby, like uh-huh. it's a different mix, but like it's a mental thing. It's definitely a mental thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the guys that make it, I mean, they just have this ridiculous drive. Like you can't, there's nothing that will get in the way of that. And they're, a lot of them are just normal-looking dudes, you know? Um, you got some that are like The Rock, I mean, but I don't know what the percentage is, but there's definitely guys like that walking By the around. way, Will is like The Rock, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you, he could kill me <laughs> with his right. bare hands. I'm flexing right now. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you get trained in hand-to-hand combat when you are trained to be a SEAL? Like, or is it mostly just weaponry? It's mostly shooting um, for for us as we were called support or direct support, and um, it was shooting for. The, and my uh, weapon was the radio. I mean, I talked to the aircraft and bring uh, bombs or rockets or strafe. Okay, so on the night that uh, the Bin Laden raid, mm-hmm. where were you? Oh, I was almost. Um, I was on my way out. I was actually on leave and uh moving to new mexico oh you were okay mm-hmm. so, so when, was, that, when that news broke did you have like an inside scoop or did it come to you the, the way it no came i didn't have an inside scoop things made sense after the fact that you know there was i knew something was going on but there was always something going on there i was working on something different but i knew you know the guys that actually um, were involved in that they were busy doing other things everybody knew that they were 
you know, working on something. But then again, there were pockets of shit going on all the time. People doing different things. So if you had been involved, like, like had you been there, was it, and let's say that you would have been involved, you would have been providing like, like what tactical air support for those. Probably. Guys? I mean, I did a bunch of different things there and you know, one of the things that I would do for what we call contingencies is go out to the place where something was going to happen and kind of set, set the stage. So, you know, for a lot of like piracy operations and things, go into the area, figure out logistically how we're going to get in and out, talk to some of the senior leadership, whatever uh, military presence is already established there and kind of let them know what's going to happen. I, I feel like and maybe I'm uh, falling too much for like the hype or something, but I find the entire narrative around that raid, the way the decision was made, the way the intelligence was gathered, the risk involved, mm -hmm. um, both militarily and also politically. Like, mm -hmm. what if it's not him? Right. <laughs> you know, you oh, yeah. fly into Pakistan. That's a huge risk. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, the fact that it worked, right, for the most part. I mean, mm -hmm. there were like there were some some troubles, right? Like the helicopter like yeah. hit the wall or whatever. You right, know, it yeah. wasn't necessarily like seamless, but mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, it was pretty well executed. Yeah. Like, were you impressed by it, or were you like, yeah. were you proud of the guys? Like, wow, they really did a great job. Or was that kind of like? What they did was sort of like what was happening every single day. It was just with a higher value target. Yeah. I mean, there was part of that too. Um, I remember like seeing, I got the newspaper. It was probably like a day or two before the mover showed up and we left. And I, I saw that and was like, oh shit, you know, this is great. Cause that was, that was the, the biggest mission while I was there. I mean, we did other things, but that was, you know, when I checked in there, they're like, this is what we're here for to get this guy that's, that's it yeah, like, as a citizen i like because i'm very um gun shy like i'm a person who's in the, i always get i'm like can we talk this out like let's not go to war <laughs> can we sit down with the taliban make yeah, some right. sense? like i'm always like let's let's use diplomacy yeah um and i know that you have to be a realist sometimes in the world but like in terms of 9-11 bin laden like i had no problem at all with going to get him Mm -hmm. dead or alive like listen this is the guy who planned this and like three thousand people died like i want some justice right so afghanistan and any like a nation that was providing safe harbor to him in the aftermath of 9-11 that made sense to me yeah iraq is where i was like what like, i know we kind of went off the rails we went off the rails and then the torture and like you know there's all that kind of stuff like yeah. it started to really kind of spiral but mm -hmm. um bin laden i was like let's get him let's let's you know let's find some justice for these people who lost their lives yeah um, so, you know, we, we touched upon it a little bit a second ago, but like you're, you're keeping a notebook. Yes. And so, yeah. And there were, there were just, it started out as, as things that I didn't want to forget, you know, and I guess what I had in mind was I wanted to be able to tell my kids about it or something, you know? So, um, uh, for example, like one night we were walking, uh, in Iraq, we were in the desert heading towards, uh, Ramadi. And as we're crossing the desert, which was like, walking across the bottom of the ocean. It was just like kind of rolling hills. Um, we had a drone overhead and the drone was equipped with something that's called sparkle. So it would drop like this ultraviolet, like laser beam down on hazards as we were walking. Sometimes it'd be barbed wire or a big hole. Um, but this time it dropped in on the, on a tractor kind of right, <laughs> right in front of me off to the right. And, uh, and the sparkle looked like, like the magic that turned Cinderella into a princess. Oh, wow. You know, and the tractor was still a tractor when it was done. But it's just like that, 
that type of thing. Like I want, I had that thought and I wanted to remember it. And so I wrote that down. By the way, I saw that same sparkle when I was on mushrooms in Boulder Did years you? ago. Yeah. See, I could have saved myself a lot of time. I don't need man. a drone. <laughs> um, so you went in, cause I think sometimes guys, I don't know. I don't know if they go into the military or they seek, uh, a combat experience or some sort of like really heightened experience because they have a literary ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm sure it's happened. You know, or, yeah. or you get into the military and you start to, and you just have that literary bent or whatever. And you're like, okay, I got to make sure I'm recording this. Like, yeah, you just said, well, I was thinking I want to be able to tell my kids about it. Right. Was there any part of you that was like, I might want to write a book about this? There was part of me that wanted to write about it. I'm sure. I mean, it's, um, but it, what I was telling myself at the time is like, I'm never going to do that because it's just, uh, on day one, my very first interview um, with these guys, I, w- I was sitting in a, like a coffee room, like a coffee break room. Um, there was a table there and there were some books on the table. And one of them was a tell all that had been written by what they, they call themselves operators by an operator who was involved in the, uh, rescue mission in Iran. Right. And he'd written a number of books and they were all kind of sitting on the desk and I was waiting to get called in for this interview. I picked up a book and I was kind of leafing through it. And the guy who came to get me to call me into the room, um, he, he saw me reading the book and he's like, we don't write books is what he told me <laughs> like right because there. of SEAL team six. Yeah. Like that's good. Because that just for people listening who might not be aware, like there's I uh, I don't know if it's an actual written code or if it's just kind of an unspoken understand or an unwritten understanding that like you don't talk about. No, no, exactly. It's, it's like, fight, like club. fight club. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what they would say. You know, first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club. So, uh, in fiction, it kind of alleviated a lot of those things and time as well. Just not that because other guys were publishing, I thought, well, you know, I can do it too. It was more, it was an obsession is what it became. Just, you know, I missed, I missed the war. I missed the guys I fought with. I missed the men and women I fought with. I missed the, uh, I missed the feeling of being opposed in like how, how much focus that gave me. Um, this is what drove you to want to write about it. Yeah. Just well to relive it, you know, to like to sit down and to think about it every day was kind of like a luxury for me. I mean, and I would talk to guys who I'd been over there with and it was obvious in like the temporal distance was, was skewed in my case. Like for me, it seemed like it had just happened. And when I talked to those guys, they were like, Oh, you're, what are you thinking about? That was like 10 years ago, man. And it didn't seem like 10 years at all Hmm. because I was waking up every day and I would go down and I would think about like, what is it? What does this mean? Like what, why, when I think of this thing, do I think of all these other random things? And then I try to like connect them. And that's what, that's what turned into the book. Okay. So, You reached out to me via email. We have like a, like a connection via email, like kind of a correspondence going back yeah. several years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you started listening to the show during the years that you were transitioning from military life to civilian life. Right. And uh, it's sort of like a Hurt Locker thing. I mean, I think that's what you're sort of talking about. Yeah. Where the order and that kind of heightened way of living, that yeah. heightened mode of living, you can't replicate that in civilian life. No. You can't. So you and, listen uh, to the other people podcast. That's it. That was that was just like right in the vein, man. Yeah. It's like adrenaline. It's like an adrenaline <laughs> shot good. to your sternum. It really is. Yeah, but it was great. I mean, yeah, I I listened to your earliest podcast now, and uh, probably all of, I've probably listened to all of them. 
maybe not the entire thing. So you're the one. I'm the one. <laughs> um, but I started, uh, when I left the SEAL team, I went to teach ROTC at the University of New Mexico. I was still active duty, and uh, it was a great job. I loved the students. Uh, didn't like the paperwork, so I just didn't do it, and nobody cared because <laughs> there was no, I mean, there really wasn't, compared to what I was doing, there was no consequence, you yeah. know? Um, so anyway, um, I would ride my bike into work and I listen to your podcast on the way in or on the way home, whatever. Thinking that you're like, I want to write like there's going to be like, you were already writing at that point or was this? No, I wasn't. I was just, I was thinking about it. It was always something in the back of my mind, not like writing and that creativity has, had always been a part of me. Um, so I kept a journal when I was in the Navy during peacetime, when I was on an aircraft carrier, just like talking about what life was like on an aircraft carrier, right? Mostly complaining, but <laughs> about Boutros, Boutros, everything. Just yeah. Boutros, Boutros, Golly. He's preventing me. Him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was, it was, it's always been something that's been there. And then, uh, did you have any like depression or like, you know, some of the, like just that like kind of like dead feeling that I would imagine you would get where you, your life is suddenly, it's like Jeremy Renner at the end of the Hurt Locker where he's mm -hmm. like standing in the aisle, like at looking at all the cereal or whatever right. at the grocery store where he's just like, oh fuck. Like, yeah. did you have that? Oh, a little bit maybe. I mean, for me it was, um, I had a big chip on my shoulder. I call it my chip on, on the shoulder face because, you know, coming from that world where it was, you know, like triple A plus type personalities, everybody. And there's a lot less harmony than you would imagine. I mean, guys just want to get their thing done, you know, and there's so many little side projects. And what do you, what do you mean in, in the military? Yeah. And in, this, in, in this SEAL team in that environment, um, you know, everybody has, they're in charge of something and like, it's the most important thing in the world. And so like, there's a lot of head button. It's in good faith. But it's it's exhausting for someone like me, who's a type B personality that has to wake up in the morning, you know, slug a cup of coffee and be like, "All right, here we go," you know, and go in and dude, if you're type deal B, with if that. you're type B, I don't know what I am. I am a freakish type B. I have to be. I, I had this conversation um, with somebody in New York as well, and it's uh, you know, you just have to trust me when I say I am. My natural inclination is to you know sit in my garage and peck away at my computer. It, and if it's cold and dark, all the better. <laughs> really? Know? Yeah. That's where yeah. you work. That's where I work. Yeah. Okay. So you, um, you have your, chi you have a chip on your shoulder. I did. Yeah. And just to make sure I'm it's clear, very small now. It's it's gotten smaller. <laughs> smaller. Well, writing a book will take that chip down a few. Yeah, inches. it does. Yeah, it's very humbling. So, uh, what like make me under like help me understand exactly why the chip was there again? It's just because you were trying to deal with like civilians who were mm, who yeah. hadn't been through what you'd been through or i don't know i can imagine if i was in seal team six and suddenly i'm dealing with like the person at starbucks i'd be like dude yeah <laughs> like, yeah it wasn't that as much as just i guess the the just the aggressiveness that had to be like on display every day like you had to be that way or you would lose face and lose respect you would you know it just um, it's kind of a juggernaut that way. It's just, you had to like, you had to show up and be forceful and, and every day. Um, so there was some of that, but there was a little bit also, I guess, of, of just like, you know, I've been out here doing all this stuff and what have you been doing? You know, which is not the attitude to have. It's completely wrong, but that's how, that's how I felt, you know? And 
some of the guys I worked with in RITC, like the, um, my boss in particular, who wasn't there very long, but he was, he was, he, he was the type. And this is what got under my skin more than like the civilian stuff, but he would kind of bask in the glory and, and he actively avoided going anywhere. And so that kind of like that really pissed me off. <laughs> and I hope he doesn't listen to this, but <laughs> the thing is like, <clears throat> and he wasn't the only one. I mean, there's a lot, there was a lot of that, like, a lot of kind of like jingoism, like, yeah, let's go, let's, let's fight. And, but also, you know, planning their careers to not go fight. But that, that happens in the military. Sure. It does. Right. It's like, I'm thinking back to like Scott McClellan in the, uh, civil war. Like, didn't he like never, he was like a general who never fought back. Probably. I mean, it's, that happens. It's just, I'm just trying to explain like why, why I had that chip, you know? And it was, uh, uh, that was a big part of it. And so when you get down to writing, you actually start going out to the garage to peck at your computer. Yeah. Like when does that happen and how, like how regular does it become? It's every day. Uh, when, when I was in ROTC, I'd write in the office. I'd go in very early and, um, cause the students showed up around five and I would, you know, I'd run with them or work out with them in the mornings. So I'd get up, you know, at like three in order to have an hour at the desk because that's my productive time before they showed up to work out. And then once they were done with their workouts, you know, I had, I had free time as long as like the toilets didn't back up or whatever. (laughs) Focus on (laughs) writing. Um, so that's what I would do. I mean, mornings was my best time I tried to clear as much space as possible. Wow. Okay. And so like, this is another thing that I find myself envying when I talk to people, like I have a cousin who's been in the military, a couple cousins, uh, is that, it instills in you, uh, I think, a kind of discipline that never really leaves. Mm-hmm. Like you still get up at like four in the morning. I do, but I mean, it's um, that's that, I'm kind of a morning person. I wasn't when I joined the Navy, so maybe you're right. That, that's probably what happened. Uh, and I'm also letting go a lot of a lot of the kind of the anal stuff that I know has just been kind of like I've been inculcated with. It comes out when you have teenagers, like my <laughs> my son in particular. I, oh, he's such a good kid, um, but he's so much like me, you know. And I, like pre Navy me, I try thinking about it, and I have such affection for that guy because it, it's my son, you know. And he's whatever can get screwed up, like, and he doesn't mean to, but right. things get screwed up, sure. you know. Yeah. And so we have these heart to hearts, and it's just like. I just want to spend the whole time just hugging him. Yeah. Just like, man, I love you. <laughs> you just need to spend a few years in the Navy. Join the yeah. SEALs. Join SEAL Team Six. We'll, we'll, we'll iron right. This we'll out. figure you out. But he's, um, yeah, he's kind of. I mean, you know, I see myself in him, um, and he's also he's helping me like get rid of some of that uh, the unnecessary um, kind of restrictions or discipline that I put on myself and. And in my daily life, well, uh, becoming you know, more of a normal human being. In addition to the heightened uh, reality of being in a war zone, I think that there's also something to be said for having your entire day regimented every single day. Like you said earlier, there's mm-hmm. always something to do. Yeah. And I think about, um, like I've read, you, know, you read interviews with like athletes, uh, especially football players. It's like, and maybe that the connection is there because it seems like the most militarized mm-hmm. sports league. Mm-hmm. Um, where you have your camaraderie, you mm-hmm. have your, you know, the guys that you're sort of in battle with, Yeah. but you also live this really regimented life. Like you're, yeah. you, you know, your schedule, 
And to suddenly not have that where your schedule is dictated to you by the military or by your employer or whatever it is, right? Uh, there's gotta be, it's gotta be an adjustment. It is a bit of an adjustment. It kind of opens everything up and it's very diffuse, you know? So, uh, and I had a hard time with it trying to not discipline myself to write, but writing is a very different, um, pursuit than, you know, waking up like planning, briefing, executing and debriefing a mission. Yeah. These seal team six guys have no idea what we're going through. Like writers. <laughs> it's fucking pussies. I know. They couldn't write if a book. they only knew, <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay. So you start to write uh, short fiction. Yeah. Were you, was that what you were setting out to do? Like I want to write stories. No, I set out to write nonfiction. Okay. And I wanted to, what I wanted, what I had in mind was this thing that would kind of encapsulate, you know, how everybody felt about everything. You know, it was a silly idea to think about, but, um, at the time I just wanted, you know, the guys I was with to read it and, and say, yeah, this is it. You know, you got it. And I, you know, I had no idea what that was, but it was something I worked on for years and just didn't, you know, the first story I published in the New Yorker, which was fiction, I mean, like 90, eight percent of that's probably true you know so the um a stylized true but but true you know we had a seven foot tall dutchman that we brought in to to run howitzers and he got candy from his mom and he really did get this <laughs> really horrible well, truth is strange, truth is stranger than fiction <laughs> i know you can't make this shit up right um so uh, you know after that point I, you know, I went back, I was like, okay, that was kind of a lark. I, you know, I started that story as nonfiction and then I transitioned to, you know, some things to fiction and some of the timeline and whatever. Um, and I thought, well, that's just a one-off. Like the real shit's in nonfiction and that's what I got to focus on. Um, so, uh, I did that and failed at it <laughs> wow. pretty much. But it, you know, it's interesting cause I, I hear this sometimes from people in whatever, you know, it's not necessarily exactly like, um, your scenario, but writing takes a certain form. It's got to, like, it's it's meant to be written a certain way, right? Uh, you can't tell certain stories, uh, in the third person. It has to be first mm -hmm. or vice versa. You can't, it can't be nonfiction. Like mm -hmm. you sort of have to stylize it or yeah. tweak it a little bit in order for the, the real deeper truth to, to rise up or, yeah. or it's just the way you're wired. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, w w was there, were there things that you were reading trying to find a guide or an example that pushed you towards fiction? Like, how did you come to the realization that like, Oh, this is the, this is the form it needs to take. Um, I think it was that I just couldn't make the nonfiction come alive. It just was, it was kind of dull and wrote and, um, I'd write myself into a corner and be like, well, I can't change this because you know, so-and-so it's, I felt an obligation to, to my teammates that was, it was really based on like they did the hard work and who am I to take liberties, you know? And I get to a point where I'd be like, oh, I'd be really nice if I could make this happen instead, but that's not what happened. So I right. need to go back to it. You know, I need to figure out some other point to get away from where I wound up. And I don't care how good your memory is or how detailed your journal is. Mm -hmm. Uh, at some point, you, it feels like you almost need a, some imaginative work. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it, I don't know. It's an act of the imagination anyway. But yeah. I can see how it would start to feel rote. Or yeah. you would get to those junctures where you're like, well, oh, it sure would be nice to be able to 
get inside the head of the seven foot tall you know, Dutchman or whatever and access his thoughts. I, I don't know if I'd want to do that. But yeah. <laughs> it's a scary place it's a to weird be. Weird dude. <laughs> um, and so then how do you get a story into the New Yorker? How do you go from sitting in your garage, you know, sort of going through the rigors of um, trying to write and figuring out how it's supposed to go to being published in pretty much the, that's like the highest echelon of, of story publishing in, in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I got the email back from Deborah Treisman, I was, uh, that was like, you know, the happiest day <laughs> I'd had in a while. But, but like, what was the submission process? Did you have an agent? Did you? Like, no, no, I didn't have an agent. What I had was a, a friend in George Saunders. Um, I'd taken a writing seminar with him years before, and he and I had stayed in touch before he was famous. Um, and every once in a while, I wasn't frequent contact but every once in a while i'd send him something that i was working on and this story happened to be one of those things and he would uh he'd read it and he gave me some pointers on this particular story what did he give you uh there was a whole section where believe it or not i got in a fight and i had to take that out <laughs> he's like you're getting your ass kicked like, this is embarrassing this is like yeah it is embarrassing <laughs> for everybody involved man so i cut that Mostly what he did was just encourage me. I mean, he just, he helped me through that nonfiction period too, where he was like, dude, you're just, you're placing these limitations on yourself. Just you, you are, you are imagining this perfect book that's never going to get done. So, you know, you can continue doing that or you can find some way to, to make it happen. Um, so anyway, he, he, um, he asked me, he's like, Hey, I think, you know, Deborah Tree Smith, New Yorker might like to see this do you mind if I send it off? And I was like, no. And so he sent it. It was probably like six months later and I got the email back. And she said, we want to publish this. Yeah. She said, um, said she really liked it. Uh, and what's the story in question? It's called Catacopen. Okay. It's about the Dutch guy and the candy that uh, his mom sent him and a particular mission that we were involved in. And so you get that email. Yeah. What do you do? Uh, like the next day I had an agent, I had a book deal and then I had to figure out the rest of it. Really? Yeah. The next day? Pretty much, yeah. I think the email came on a Friday, so it was like Monday or Tuesday morning. The story's not even in print yet. Right. And people are coming coming at you? Asking yeah. you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did they find out? Deborah's talking to him? Or? I, I suppose so, but George he told his agent, and uh -huh. she was the one who called me. She's like... Uh, her name's Esther Newberg, um, and she is she's a character. I mean, I don't know if she called me. Yes, she did. She called me. Wait, she, is she at ICM? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's like Binky Urban and Esther Newberg, right? right? Yeah. They're like the old guard. They are, yeah. Right. So yeah. that's a good agent to have. That's your she's agent? She's a great agent. Yeah. She's my agent. Um, and then she had a book deal for me like the very next day. So See, this is, what, see, this is the sort of thing... Well, I guess if like the New Yorker's publishing you, George Saunders is advocating for you, Esther Newberg is your agent. There are like there are levers of power in the world of publishing. Like, boom, it can happen like that. Yeah. All, all of a sudden, you got. And how many stories did you have? Did you have a full collection? I had that one. That was it. I had ideas, yeah. but I had that one. You know, so they were really. I mean, they were just betting on on me that I could do it. I didn't. Really, I I had no evidence beyond that that one story that. Um, that anybody had ever really responded to. So, um, it was kind of like going, going to the woodshed at that point, you know, after the, 
uh, the celebration died down. It's like, all right, now I got to figure out what to do. Oh shit! <laughs> oh, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> They're uh, gonna figure me out. That's you, what I thought pretty much every day. Did you? Okay, so take take us through what. I know, like every story is probably a little bit different, but like, what does it look like for you when you are conceiving of a story, uh, making you know the initial draft, and then you know paring it down or tweaking it until you feel like it's it's ready? Like, what is it? How does it typically go? Um, it it goes line by line. I mean, I work kind of line by line. I'll um, I'll work on a paragraph to take an entire week or two, and then I'll cut it. I mean, I'm very it's a very laborious and obscure process. Are you slow? Me, very slow. Do you, when you say pecking at your computer, do you do you hunt? I and don't peck? know how to type. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it's a little smoother now, but it's a hunt and peck basically. Oh. Yeah. So, um, but the stories themselves kind of came came about organically. Like there's a there'd be an image or something that I couldn't you know that I was just obsessed about, and then I'd build the story around it. Uh, one thing in, in particular, there's a story called Crossing the River No Name, where a bunch of things kind of came into play on that one. Um, we did lose a guy who drowned in a river, so there was that. Um, and then there was the story by Isaac Bobble. It's what, called... What happened to the guy in the river? He fell in and drowned. We were crossing a river and he fell in and drowned. He wasn't on my team, but he was on a team that was part of our crew. He couldn't swim? Well, he's wearing armor. He's wearing. Oh, right. I mean, it's a. Uh, the current was ridiculous. Yeah. They were way up in the mountains, you know. So yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's not just like you know you're walking across a river. It was like I white know. water and all kinds of craziness. Um, <clears throat> so that happened. Uh, I'd always had that story um, by Isaac Bobble in mind. It was uh, it's crossing the river Zubrick. I think is how you pronounce it, but. Um, in that story, in the beginning, as like Bobble's unit is crossing this river, there's a guy who falls in and takes the the mother of God's name in vain. I think is the line, and that actually happened one night. So we were out with a, a different unit. A guy from this unit fell into an irrigation ditch, and as he fell in, he screamed out, "God damn it!" <laughs> it was like watching you know that story come to life. And so there was that. I fell in an irrigation ditch once, was submerged. And uh, and floated down river for a while, so there was that. And when I was underwater, I really did think about, like I was looking up at the surface, seeing kind of like the, um, the sparkle. We had sparkle on our rifles as well, so the guys were sparkling the surface, and I could see that. What do you mean you have sparkle on your rifles? It's a smaller laser. It's a targeting thing, so oh. it's like a spotlight, but there's also a laser beam bore sighted to the rifle, so. Where the laser hits, that's where the bullets are going to hit. And then the UV spotlight around it just kind of lets you know what, 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 what else is there. At. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they also use it, like, you know, to look for people. It's not bullets. It's not, it doesn't trigger bullets. It's just the light comes on, the laser comes on. So you could see, I could see that up on the surface. There's that part. The miracle made me think about this football game from high school where, you know, we won against all odds. And so that at the time that felt like a real live miracle and that story brought all those things together for me that's a lot of what fiction writing is isn't it yeah like you're you're mining your own experiences one way or another or you know something that you've been exposed to but then it's finding patterns and connections right yeah that's that was the satisfying part for me like for that story i felt like i got that one right like i and it took me forever it took me 
probably four years. I was one of the longest ones I worked on. No shit. Four yeah. years. Just to figure out, like, why do I think about this goddamn football game, you know, when I when I think about this other stuff? And it's the miracle. Yeah, that's that feeling what, of something miraculous having Right, happened. right. And then when you were floating in the irrigation ditch, you're underwater and the guys are sparkling and you're looking up at the surface. Yeah. Like that, that was a miracle? The fact that you survived? I wanted one. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, bail me out. Yeah. So how did you get back up to the surface? You uh, I, I hit the bottom and kicked off and went, went back up. And then there was somebody on the edge. It was muddy, like slippery as hell edges and, and guys pulled me out. Damn. I wasn't the only one. There but I mean, like when you were, when you, and you were geared submerged. up. Yeah. When you fell in. Uh-huh. So you're like, are you weighted to the point where you're just going to sink? Oh yeah. Okay. So you kicked up and you're working against the weight that's on your back or whatever. Right. And if no one had been there to grab you when you surfaced, you would have sank again. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. But we're prepared for that. I mean, we knew we were crossing this thing and so guys would wait on one end and guys would wait on the other. Um, and so you would, you know, try to make your play for the other side. And if it didn't work out, then everybody would move along with the current waiting for you to pop back up and pull you out. Okay. No, it was, it was maybe like five, six feet uh, wide. Were you panicking at all? A little bit. I mean, it's just, um, it's not pleasant. It was very cold. I remember that. It was very cold and dark. It was in the winter. And, uh, I, I just, I felt like an idiot more than I panicked. I just was like, God damn it. I got to be the one who's fucking falling in. You know, <laughs> this is not <laughs> so the way that, I want to go. I, I was embarrassed more than I was panicking. So you talked <clears throat> a little bit about this earlier and I, I think this is an aspect of combat and just, uh, you know, the conflict of, uh, man versus man, mm-hmm. uh, is that it all does unfold in the natural world. Mm hmm often in spectacular nature environments. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like Terrence Malick's film, uh, the thin red line gets to this yeah. where like he does these cutaways to like wildlife, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like all of a sudden you're up in a tree and there's like a monkey going like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of moments of sort of stark beauty, I would imagine. And yeah. in these, uh, in these places that you were based and there were and, definitely, uh, you talk about, um, livestock and one night we had, a uh, compound. Um, it had a, a gate, like a, like a castaways raft. It was like all these trees kind of, you know, strung together. And once we got through that, there was a giant bull asleep in the courtyard. Um, and it stayed asleep the entire time. (laughs) It was like, its lip was hanging down and its eyes were just, you know, like you could see the fucking thing was in REM, this huge animal. Um, and we just kind of tiptoed around it. Like, we don't want to piss that guy off, did our business and then left the whole time. He was snoozing. Wow. Yeah. That's a good image. Yeah. I mean, it's weird stuff. You know, another night, uh, this is in Iraq again. We were walking, uh, the desert near Alamara. Um, and, and the desert Iraq, like, you know, Iraq had that really long war with Iran before, uh, we got involved. And by that, I mean like the 91, the hundred day war that we had there. Um, so there was that too. And then there's, there was our involvement starting in 2003. Um, and so there's no shortage of barbed wire in the country. Right. And the wind will, will kind of push it and collect it in the desert. So kind of like, you know, out in the middle of the ocean where there's like a, an Island of milk cartons, right? Like you'll find 
a giant collection of barbed wire in the like, desert. It rolls like tumbleweeds. Yeah, kinda. it's like a big tumbleweed. And, and it's, I guess it's light enough. The winds are strong enough to whip that stuff around. Yeah, but this one was kind of anchored. It was heavy enough. And it was shaped like a swan, and the wind ripping through it, it sounded like a UFO. It's like, like Burning Man. Yeah, it's it must have. I've never been to Burning Man. <laughs> if I'd just done mushrooms to. and gone to Burning Man, <laughs> that would have saved time. me 23 years. There's still time. You can do that. <laughs> uh, do you want your son to go into the military? Is that something um, you hope for? He, he, he and I talk about it. I, it's not something I hope for. I mean, if he does it, I will, I will you know, pull out all the stops to help help make it easier for him. Like, and by that, I mean the things I learned, the way to treat people, um, that sort of, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, with the current jackass in charge, I don't want him to have any part, you know, cause I know within the military itself, like there are leaders there, you know, that's the great American theory. As far as I'm concerned, everybody wakes up wanting to do the right thing. And you got to believe that. I mean, there's probably, I'm, I'm sure there's bad actors, but for the most part, everybody wants to do the right thing. So in the in that microcosm, like I think he'd be safe. I think he'd be fine. I think he would contribute. But to think about the civilian leadership that's in charge right now, I don't have a whole lot of faith. Well, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the president of the United States is to some extent, a Russian agent. That's a crazy thing to say. I know. It but it, I think it's the truth. Way, doesn't it? And uh, like, yeah, it's, uh, it's unnerving. Definitely. I Look, don't. So what do you think? Like, cause this is something that as a civilian with no military experience or deep knowledge, uh, I sometimes think about is that like Trump is, uh, you know, emotionally unstable. He's kind of a nut mm-hmm. and uh deeply narcissistic dude, sociopath. Like, I really think these things, you know, I think that's what he is. Yeah. If he feels cornered by the law mm-hmm. and he continues to have the powers of the presidency, I could easily see him uh, lashing out or ordering some sort of crazy preemptive nuclear strike or something like that. Mm-hmm. I also fear, like, this is something that keeps me up at night. I also fear that as sanctions are levied, which just today, the day that we're talking, they, yeah. they've levied, like the treasury decided to levy these sanctions against Russia. Right. But as these oligarchs get squeezed and as the international community, hopefully like the UK just expelled a bunch of diplomats. So you're starting to see pushback. Right. And I think, you know, Putin and Trump uh, are cut from a similar cloth and that, you know, to them, power is a zero sum game. And like, it's all about basically if they have autocratic tendencies, they have kleptocratic tendencies. It's like, what can I get for me? Mm -hmm. And they basically, I mean, Putin will kill people Mm -hmm. for crossing him. Yeah. You know, you'll get a polonium or whatever put in your, (laughs) in your coffee. No, can't taste good. Yeah. So, I mean, but for real, you know, he'll murder people, murder journalists, anybody who's a dissident, they'll be jailed, whatever. Like he doesn't have any, uh, moral barrier. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what I worry about is that if Trump and Putin both feel cornered, mm-hmm. like, wh- is there a back channel? Are they, are they talking to one another? And then if they were to conspire or if Trump, you know, on his own were to suddenly start issuing orders, there's a chain of command. And in the military, that's pretty, that's pretty sacred. Like you don't violate chain of command, but if yeah. you're, uh, the secretary of defense, secretary Mattis. And I, he's got to know. He's got to. Like he's and and by the way, like I feel like Secretary Mattis has got to be way more simpatico with Bob Mueller than he ever would be with Trump. They're both Definitely. vets. Yeah, like they've got to be in contact. They're salt of the earth guys. I, I mean, I, I believe there's a back channel between them. 
I, I hope believe so. I believe Mattis and, and Mueller are having phone calls. Uh, well, I almost hope that doesn't happen because if they find that out, then that's gonna that's gonna cause trouble for them. But oh, it, well, okay, I would maybe, think uh, there's like an unspoken communication between the two of them. Like, all right, we need to get the right thing done. It's what I hope. I mean, in Mueller's case, it's a little easier to see with with Mattis. He he's sec def, so he has to perform function. Right? He cannot he cannot sow chaos by bucking his boss. You know, and, and so if so, this is my question I'm driving at: is that if Trump, like, let's say there's like a, a Saturday night massacre, he's, he fight like they're talking about, he's going to fire Sessions, he's going to try to fire Rosenstein or Mueller, everything goes into sort of chaos, and then maybe a bunch of indictments get unsealed, mm-hmm. um, and then the the heat really turns up, which is what I think would happen. Yeah, uh, and then Trump says, "Fuck it, we're going to nuke North Korea." Is there any scenario you could envision where military leadership says no? Yeah. I mean, I would, it shouldn't work that way. It shouldn't ever have to work that way, but that's the constitutional crisis or one of the scenarios of constitutional crisis that we could find ourselves in. Right. So you would hope that saner heads would prevail as the, you know, the more and more we spend time under this administration, it seems less and less likely that saner heads would prevail. Like I had a lot of faith in Kelly after, um, I think it was the the second insult to a um, gold star family that you know Trump did when Kelly backed him up on that. That that was that hurt. I mean, it's just like Kelly. Kelly is a strange figure because everyone. I think everyone's just so desperate for sanity that they pinned all their hopes on this guy. But yeah, you've got to be either somebody who feels like you're going into the lion's den to try to like maintain some semblance of order or, mm-hmm. or like be there to like gather intelligence to, mm-hmm. so you can have somebody on the inside who understands, or there's gotta be something compromised about you. Cause man, talk about uh, a danger to your reputation and mm-hmm. your future potential as a breadwinner. Like I feel like anybody who works on the inside and advocates for this guy, that's going to, I think that's, that's going to taint you as you, yeah, I would hope so. But it, it seems impossible to, to go work for him and then come out unscathed. I mean, but, I don't, you know, Kelly's no exception there, but you know, there is no, no denying the sacrifice that he's made. So there is quite a difference between him and Trump. I don't equate the two yeah, by any stretch. Cause Kelly as a, uh, is a, he's a gold star father, right? He lost his son in Afghanistan. I mean, he's been over there himself. He puts his money where his mouth is. The disappointing thing though, is that, you know, he has led sailors and Marines and he's had, uh, men and women working for him, you know, that did their best every day, you know, and all this good stuff. And so like for him to, uh, to almost go counter to that, like whether he was pissed off at the Congresswoman who, who, whatever she said to Trump on the phone, the fact of the matter remains that the widow felt insulted and that should have been the primary. Like, okay, we need to fix that. Mm. Who cares what the fuck anybody else what, says? What was the what was the widow? Who was the widow? It wasn't the it wasn't the Khan family that was no. The, it was, the campaign. It was the um, the mother of one of the soldiers that was lost in Niger. Oh right, I forget his name. Um, you know, but he's African American, so that probably played a part in it uh, from it's Trump's perspective, but also maybe from Kelly's. Maybe from him, you know, maybe from him, but that's the thing that I can't wrap my mind around. Like if you're part of the military, like you cannot, I mean, I'm sure there's closet racists and I know that it exists. I'm not saying it doesn't, but 
at some point you you know it would just wear you down because everybody like there's such a mix there and especially to be a leader of um these men and women you have to you have to see clearly through that you can't just be like well they're fucked up i'm not going to deal with them you need everybody that's right and especially when things are actually happening right yeah and you're in these uh like war theaters like all that stuff i would imagine even if you come to the table with some sort of baggage racially or uh you know in terms of uh, sexual orientation when you're in the trenches like all that's got to fall away right yeah i mean there's a um, one of the, the seals on the team I was on, he's, um, he was transgender. He came out as transgender after he left the teams, right? And then he transitioned to a woman and his story has been in GQ and he, he ran for Senate, I think in Maryland or something. But, um, yeah, like that guy, you know, to see, and I haven't been back really to, to know like the reaction, but there was a lot of people that were just like who fucking cares i mean guys on the team were just like go man yeah go ahead do it i mean i'm sure there were people who were who would maybe never talk to him again or something stupid but there was also a lot of compassion yeah mm-hmm. well i mean you know that's the thing too it's like it's a, you talk about the mix um there really is a, a huge mix in the military that's part of i, I would imagine the education that you got from being in it um mm-hmm. because you don't necessarily have exposure uh, to that combination of backgrounds, people from all over the country, regionally, right. mm-hmm. um, racially, yeah. gender, you know, I guess there's, I, mean, I don't know what the, the gender split is in the military. It's pretty heavily male, but still, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, you're interacting with and depending on people from all over the place, different yeah. education levels, you mm-hmm. know, everything. So, uh, I don't know. I feel like you would probably have a, a deeper perspective than most on what it's going to take for us to uh, communicate with one another and sort things out and get along. Like, I, yeah, it can't, be, it feels like it's more complicated than it needs to be. It does. You know, it's the, the clarifying agent in the military, of course, is the mission mm-hmm. and the higher pressure, the mission, the more that shit doesn't matter. Right. Right. So that's, yeah. And until I guess, you know, I'm starting to feel it now, like, um, just armchair, you know, observations that, uh, it seems like, you know, with the Parkland school students, um, fighting back with this win in, uh, Pennsylvania on top of the win in Alabama, like people are fed up with that shit. It seems like to me, you would hope. I really hope that that's the direction that we're going in. Um, and that's kind of the pressure. Like if we could say there's anything good about Trump administration, I suppose it's the, it's the pressure that he's putting our, on our democracy and that will hopefully crystallize this feeling of fuck you. Well, you know? it's funny because like <laughs> Be I, was, nice. I think about the same, I think about things that same way. And I, I, I also, uh, when I do that, think back to the 2012 campaign, I believe it was a 2012 campaign when Obama was talking about how, you know, the fever is going to break yeah. on the, on the, on the right side, on the right. GOP side where, yeah. you know, there's this sort of everything's anti Obama and, there's this kind of hysteria yeah. and he's like, the fever's going to break once the election's over and we're going to get back to governance. And he was wrong. Yeah, he was <laughs> like the fever spiked. It did. And it's, it's like, now we're at the point where it's like one Oh four, Yeah, you know, yeah. and w- maybe Trump is going to be 
what causes it to finally break, you know, like it's yeah. like this pathogen has been released into our system. Mm -hmm. And like you say, it's, it's putting a ton of pressure on all of our institutions mm -hmm. and it's a stress test and yes. we don't know, we don't know exactly how it's all going to shake out. Mm -hmm. We hope that we pass the test. We hope that the institutions hold, we hope that the rule of law is maintained, but it's no guarantee. And I think it really is going to come down to ordinary citizens. Yeah. Like people like you say, in Pennsylvania and down in Alabama mm -hmm. have, uh, made their voices heard. The kids from Parkland have especially, uh, I think been effective. Yeah. Uh, I think that what's interesting about them, I was reading, you know, everyone's got a take, Yeah. but I was reading some essay online that made a lot of sense to me. Is that like in the kids from Parkland, Trump who has used social media and exploited social media to his advantage, mm -hmm. uh, very well in concert with the Russians, yeah, you know, with all yeah. these bots and everything, right, yeah. uh, has met his match mm -hmm. in a group of pissed off teenagers who grew up on Twitter. I know, it's you know, like they know how to troll people. They know how to, yep. um, you know, like make a message go viral. Yeah. They real that's their language. So now they're so much smarter than yeah, that. Right? <laughs> like great. Nancy Pelosi on Twitter. It doesn't know what the fuck she's doing, but like, yeah. you know, these kids, kids from Parkland. Yeah. They know how to flex. So well, like, like a typical bully, right? He knows what, what fights to pick and what fights not to pick. As far as I know, he hasn't squared off with the Parkland kids, nor has he squared off with, um, uh, Tammy Duckworth, who she was a helicopter pilot over in Iraq or I think her helo was shot down and she wound up losing both her legs. Right. And you know, she, at some point she tweeted something about, I don't, no, but private, I don't stand and clap for, you know, a five deferment foot boo-boo guy or something like no, that. Private right? bone spurs is what she called them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Cadet yeah. bone spurs. Cadet bone spurs. So Stroke she, of genius. Yeah. Right. But, and he knows, you know, cause he's a little coward bitch fucking bully right. that he can't square off with her because she's legit, you know? And I think the same thing with the, with these kids, they've been through the crucible. Don't tell them that. You know, a teacher with a gun is going to solve the problem. Yeah. One of the most absurd things that I've ever heard come out of Trump's mouth, which is saying something, is when he said, like, I think I would have run in there. I think yeah, I would have run into that school. He wouldn't have run into shit. He, he would have run into 7-Eleven. He would have cowered behind the donut He'd been stand. hiding under a car in the parking lot crying. Yeah. Oh, that, that made me, Well, I, you know, it's hard to get furious anymore. It's just... Hopefully he's gone soon. Absurd. What's, yeah. Do you have a sense of how it's going to end? I don't. I don't. I mean, I, like you, I have a lot of faith in Mueller. I still have some faith in Kelly, although it's probably misplaced. I have faith in Mattis um, only because I know their types. So, And it seems like Mueller is always two or three steps ahead of uh, whatever you know revelations are coming out about him. Yeah, he's a cool customer. I, yeah. Like I was saying the other day on Twitter, I was like, wow, his... Like the, the power that he is accruing in the imaginations of conscientious Americans is yeah. enormous yeah. Uh, by way of his silence. Yep. Like the less he speaks, the badass, like he just, he, at this point he's like Obi-Wan Kenobi yep. to me. Like I, you know, and he's like my whoopee and, uh, and he's know. a snappy dresser. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like he's a silver Fox. A total uh, package. I'm, I'm attracted to him. I don't know. What, <laughs> just want him to save us. Yeah. Um, so what's that? So you're out here, uh, you're meeting with film and television agent. Yeah. You're trying to see if there's any potential with one of these stories to develop. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine those conversations will continue. I hope so. This is just the beginning. Right. Yeah. It's just the first time. Are you going to try to write up like a write a pilot script or something or? No, I think I'm just going to continue writing short stories and, and see what happens. Are um, you working on another collection or? I'm working on the ones that didn't make the cut. 
and so there's a few that I knew that were, uh, that had potential that I'd just had to abandon due to time. Oh, and I'm going back to those going back to the, I know, yeah. like, so like how many do you have that you, you're noodling yeah, with? It's probably like four total right now. And then you would need like another, it's probably eight years of work. <laughs> and then, uh, do you ever feel like the well will run dry? With regard I don't. to military stories? No. I mean, with that, I don't know. I I would probably want to do some other things just because it'd be a challenge. That it would, I didn't have that built-in drama that, that just instantly comes, you know, whenever I think of something involving that. Um, so I would like to try that and see if I can make something work that way. Write a short but, story about this experience being on my podcast. Hanging out with Brad. <laughs> it's called The Garage. It's called, <laughs> it's called Brad is a Great Name. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to do an entire... I'm going to write a book I didn't want to open that can of worms, Steve. Sorry. <laughs> it's my trauma. You yeah. think military trauma is bad? Wait till, I, till your name is Brad. Um, well, it's great to meet you, man. And, yeah, same. Uh, I appreciate you listening to the show and, and reaching out all, you know, several years ago. Yeah. And, uh, congratulations on the success of your collection. I look forward to the, uh, the HBO series when yeah, it comes to fruition, <laughs> <laughs> when you're out here and you're like a big shot, like maybe we could have like, you know, power lunch or something. Yeah, that would be great. I look forward to it. All right, man. All right, dude. Okay, guys, there you go. Will Mack and his new story collection, debut story collection, is called Bring Out the Dog. It is available from Random House. Bring Out the Dog, go get your copy right now. You can find Will on the internet. His website is wmackin.com. His Twitter handle is at Muhammad's Radio. Will Mackin, Bring Out the Dog. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to uh, Cigarette Royalty for the uh, transitional music that you're hearing uh, as we speak. Don't forget this podcast has a Twitter feed, at OtherPPL. I am no longer on Facebook. I announced that on Twitter, but I deleted my Facebook after all this bullshit with Cambridge Analytica. I couldn't take it. Fuck Facebook. Delete your account. Do it. They sold us all out. They sold out uh, democracies all over the planet for money. That's what they did. They got to live with the consequences. Fuck those people. Idiots. I have strong feelings about that. Uh, what else? If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I did have a, a late entry, a late question from a listener named Gregory Buford on Twitter. He wants me to talk about Stormy Daniels is the only one in the country who can defeat Trump. You might be right. <laughs> I don't know. I do. I, you know, I did watch 60 Minutes. I watched uh, her interview and I was impressed by her. She's smart. She's nobody's fool. And she handled, you know, she definitely got some media training and her attorney seems like, uh, you know, a very skilled operator and a tough guy and a formidable opponent for Trump and his uh, goon squad. So I'm kind of pulling for her. I hope she's successful in uh, getting the truth out there and making people see this guy for who he really is. And I like the fact that she's not intimidated. Good for her. She never was intimidated. Though I do have to, you know, it's a mark against her that she ever had sex with a guy. Unprotected sex in the first place. But she copped to that as well. She's like, I fucked up. It was a terrible mistake. I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> That's just gross to even contemplate. 
But I think that Stormy, I mean, as, as sideways as things are in the United States, politically, uh, if, you know, unless she gets paid elsewhere, she'll probably keep this thing going. She probably will run for president. Not to actually win, but as a publicity stunt. But as we've seen, you can actually win, even when you're just, like, trying to get publicity. And you got to be careful about who we let run for president. People need to have a sense of responsibility. You know, we have a porn star like up on the da- uh, what do you, how do you pronounce that word dais up on the dais degrades the office I'm sorry nothing against porn stars but come on we've got to have a little bit of uh, dignity to the presidency so I'm a little under the weather can you hear it I have a cold but that's sometimes I, I sometimes I feel like that's good you know takes my voice down an octave gives me a little bit more gravitas I took some, uh, what do you call it? Not Metamucil. I took, uh, damn, I can't think. Mucinex. I took Mucinex. I think it's wearing off. I can feel myself, uh, I'm losing my ephedrine buzz. Getting very sleepy. (laughs) 